Oh yeah, guys, as you can see, Todd Purse joins me yet again for this very interesting, ultra-mega-energetic, fun episode where we laugh our asses off discussing and conveying this man who in the 60s decided to take his granny's fur coat, a Halloween mask, and a baseball bat with a railroad spike through it and walk along a highway, scaring the shit out of drivers. This man single-handedly revitalized the legend, the legend of the Selbyville Swamp Monster which just grew and grew throughout the decades until he came out and said, yeah, I am the Swamp Monster. But still, people to this day keep reporting the Swamp Monster. And my original idea for this episode was to talk just about the Swamp Monster, but when you go into it, and when you learn something about this land, the Great Cypress Swamp of Southern Delaware, and then you spread to the rest of Sussex County of Delaware, you kind of realize this is not an isolated case. There's a lot of shit going on in this county. Apart from swamp monsters and Bigfoot, there are dog-like cryptids. There are UFOs, some of them actually transforming into humanoid beings. There are ghosts of girls which carry their head in their hands. And then there is the ghost of a cat man. And if you tap on his grave three times, he will cause your car to stop. A lot of car-related phenomena in this episode. But what myself and Todd have realized researching into this is that Sussex County of Southern Delaware may be a window area. And all of this weird phenomena might have been re-energized by the liminality of this place, but also by the tricksterish shenanigans of this great man. And guys, this episode is dedicated to the wonderful man himself, Fred Stevens a.k.a. the Swamp Monster. Todd, long time no see. <laughs> How you doing, Vuk? <laughs> I'm doing great. Like, I should be doing a podcast with you every month. Ooh, I'm into it. Monthly pods with Vuk and Todd. <laughs> we were actually <laughs> discussing so- something like that. Like, hey, maybe we do a weekly pod. And I'm like, oh, man. How will we manage that? I like to take on more than I should, Vuk, so I'm really glad that you have the ability to be upfront and straightforward and say, we can't do that, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, you are already doing, during this month, another podcast named Weird Coffee, and that's essentially what inspired this episode we're doing now. Can you explain to the listeners what, what's going on? Yeah, so uh, my main gig, illustration-wise, is for a, a coffee company called Brandywine Coffee Roasters, and every year we do a Spooky Coffee Club. So this year I decided that all of the coffee shipments of the Spooky Coffee Club would come with a podcast episode called Weird Coffee, and they're going to focus on some Delaware urban legends and monsters and myths, etc. So uh, me and my co-worker Aaron have been kind of covering a topic. She's pretty unfamiliar with any of this stuff, and I just kind of go over it very, very loosely. So I'm excited to get into these in a bit more detail with you, Vuk. 
because oh, the yeah. stuff you sent me already is like so interesting and stuff I did not go over on the podcast. But yeah, that, that in general is what Weird Coffee is. So listeners, my original plan with Todd was, okay, you're doing this Weird Coffee thing about a weird urban legends from Delaware. Let's do an episode for my podcast about Delaware legends. And the more I went into research, I saw that the three topics you covered already on that podcast are very interconnected. <laughs> and then <laughs> I uncovered that this whole area might be an actual window area right under our noses. So I'm like, dude, we should focus on this weird southern part of Delaware known as Sussex County. Yes. When you sent me the amount of articles you did in the last couple of days, I was just blown away because I don't call myself a researcher, obviously. Like I get into this stuff for fun. But with somewhere like Delaware, I feel like I've heard everything. And when you send me like six different articles of things I've never heard of, I get really excited. (laughs) (laughs) Also, you have inspiration for new episodes of Weird Coffee now. (laughs) Exactly. It's perfect. Also, like uh, saying a weird part of Delaware or Sussex County is not saying much because you're like the second smallest state and you only have three counties. No, it's funny. I was thinking about that as you've sent things as far as like different weird stuff connected. And I'm like, well, that's kind of far away. But then I think about it in relation to like other states. And I'm like, oh, wait, no, even far away in Delaware is close for most places. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So Delaware is known as the first state. Is this because it officially became the first U.S. state to uh, ratify the Constitution, I believe. So we are. Yeah. Yeah. We're known as the first state and uh, we definitely we have a lot of history here. And I mean, down south is there's a lot of history, but it's not stuff that's talked about very much. Uh, Old Newcastle or Newcastle up top here is the most historical town. And there's just yeah tons of colonial history and really cool buildings and ghost stories there. Also, like uh, researching into this, I kind of became a aware that Delaware is a very liminal state. I mean, it's known as the first state. It is bordered by so many important states that need to go through Delaware in order to reach each other. You know, like somebody who wants to go from Pennsylvania to to Washington, D.C. through Maryland needs to go through Delaware. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a historian, but from my understanding, even in like big historical things like the Civil War, like Delaware was able to kind of play on the, the line and be like, we're gonna be union <laughs> and like kind of pick at the you know being a bit have their foot in both camps if that makes sense <laughs> oh yeah uh, there's this cool thing related to delaware i found out it's called the wedge it's this oh, little yeah. part of of western delaware that was for a very long time like a no man's land it did not belong to any state and there was a whole dispute uh, which state owns that little wedge because the yeah. way they they constructed the borders it was not very geometrically accurate so there's this little kind of spiky wedge that's left there yeah no delaware's border is wild like when you actually look at it like there is jagged and just weird i mean the shape is definitely i guess most states are kind of weird on the borders like just the way that the coast cuts them and everything but we got that little hook up top and everything it's definitely some weird weird shape going on (laughs) Mm -hmm. okay so my main idea for this episode was the selbyville swamp monster because that's something i already went into 
to with Jordan in relation to hoaxing Bigfoot and, you know, conjuring talpas of Bigfoot-like creatures. Yes. But there is much more depth to the Selbyville Swamp Monster, much more depth than people actually give it credit for knowing that it's a hoax. But also, it goes into so much lore and legends, not just related to the Selbyville area and the Great Cypress Swamp, but the whole county as well. So for the start, like we all know, and listeners, you probably heard this on my podcast before, but the Selbyville Swamp Monster was a hoax. A hoax perpetrated by two guys to sell newspapers. And the guy who hoaxed the Selbyville Swamp Monster who dressed up as it, Fred Stevens, yes, uh, came out like in uh, 1987, 20 years after the hoax was perpetrated and said, yeah, I was the monster the whole time. <laughs> Now, I read a few books for research for this episode, and a lot of the books reference like, oh, now that this guy hoaxed this, cryptozoologists are dismissing the legends of this area, and now nobody believes in it, blah, blah, blah. I think that's doing a huge disservice to what this person did, because as you you and I, Todd, know, hoaxes can sometimes spawn real paranormal phenomena and maybe uh, re-mystify the, the land. Yeah, no, I mean, I think he's just further furthering the mythology and making it so that it's spreading in a whole new way. And I think hoaxing in general is is an act of creativity. And when you look at what he went through to put together the costume and the the best thing that you sent me so far, Vuk, is his obituary and just Mm -hmm. reading about how he was an artist and a designer. He designed the town seal like that's amazing. And I just love the through line of these hoaxers being artists and designers. I mean, I I was telling you that I was talking to our mutual buddy, AP Strange, about Doc Shields, who was mm-hmm. a famous hoaxer with Loch Ness and a few other monsters. And he was also just this amazing surreal surrealist artist. And I think it's such a cool way to express something that is like bigger. It's almost like an art installation. Oh, yeah. AP Strange on the episode he did with me said that he loves the surgeon's photograph as a piece of art, regardless if it's a hoax exactly. or not. And he is right. I also see hoaxing as a performance art. Like this dude dressed up as a monster and conveyed the monster and created a whole mythology and legend that still lingers on. And we're now talking about him after his his death. Yeah. He unfortunately d- uh, passed away last year in January, but I don't see that as tragic. I see as maybe we are we are now celebrating him, you know, and his life. So Absolutely. for the start, I'd like you to read his obituary because I found it very sweet and very badass as well. And the listeners will realize why. <laughs> I agree completely. Okay, I'm going to do my best here, Vuk. I haven't done any reading out loud besides like kids books in so long. So <laughs> here we <laughs> (laughs) go. William Frederick Stevenson's aka the Swamp Monster age 83 of Selbyville died Friday January 8th 2021 at home. He was the son of the late Llewellyn and Josephine Pepper Stevens. Fred served in the U.S. Marine Corps and retired after 34 years at the DuPont Company. He designed several logos at DuPont and Seaford. Fred was the notorious Swamp Monster of Cypress Swamp. He was a member of the Salem United Methodist Church. The church historian served on the church council and started the annual Red Man Sunday. 
He was the designer of the Selbyville Town Seal and the Town Historian, and also designed the Wissahakan Tribe Number no. 20 emblem. Fred was a member of, and past president of the Selbyville Improvement Foundation, member of the American Legion Post 24 in Dagsboro, member of the Selbyville Lions Club, honorary member of the Selbyville Volunteer Fire Department, member and profit for Wissahakan Tribe Number no. 20, and on the home board of State Redman. Fred was also a Halloween costume enthusiast who won several <laughs> contests over the years. Man, that's my favorite part. <laughs> Fred yeah. was instrumental in getting state prisoners to clean Joe Long Cemetery in Selbyville and getting a new museum for the town of Selbyville. And he worked with state archives in presenting a monument in memory of John McCabe, Revolutionary War soldier at the Redman Cemetery. The family would like to thank his caregivers, Sylvia and Renee. He is survived by his wife of 56 years. Services and burial will be, will be private. Okay. So yeah, that was amazing dude i won like that is just badass you nailed it like that is such yeah. a cool <laughs> obituary and the fact that like he cared enough about halloween costume contests to be to go in his obituary that makes me it gives me goosebumps it makes me so happy oh yeah oh yeah and th that's essentially what he did when he was the monster and i love like how his obituary starts with his real name and then aka the swamp monster and then yes, if, right if up that top. wasn't enough then later on they say he was the notorious cypress swamp monster <laughs> it's so good it's so good and like i love that it's obviously something that didn't just mean something to him but it meant something to his family and like oh, yeah. the connection to his local little town like down south in delaware people really care about where they come from and like it is definitely more of a rural setting and like you can tell i think i said this to you before but this guy that is delaware like what his what his uh work and home and civil life was that is like that is what I think of when I think of a stereotypical Delaware person like working for DuPont your whole life some military stuff like he did it and like the fact that he was creating logos for them and just being a you know swamp monster at the same time makes me so happy <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I wanted to make a point of that like this obituary is so badass uh, though it is tragic you know uh, uh, to even laugh at reading a, an obituary man but yes. still it's celebrating his life and the obituary was written in that context you know it's celebrating yes. the the awesomeness of this guy and the absurdity as well absolutely and you can tell like through the whole thing there's like there's a joy to it like the, like i think that's part of what hoaxing brings to the paranormal is this element of joy and playfulness and playfulness is something that i think has its own type of magic that gets lost throughout the years and i think hoaxing is a way to lean into that childlike uh, mindset if that makes sense Oh, yeah. I mean, only in this case, the cryptozoologists are annoyed of the hoaxing because, you know, oh, there was a legend of a creature and now this guy is hoaxing and nobody will believe that there's a creature. Well, there was a legend of the creature. Yes. Now this guy hoaxed and revitalized a legend and maybe sparked more legends. So, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> Stop being stop being such a party breaker and and just yeah. embrace the fuckery. Totally. And just the amount of uh people that have had the experience of going there and hunting for the Selbyville swamp monster like to this day that happens and that's mm -hmm. just a, ma a magic all on its own. Like you said there's this beautiful uh it's a place like nowhere else in Delaware without the swamp monster. Like it really is beautiful and just like a scene out of something you would see in the south that we 
we are very lucky to have here. But when you put this extra uh, imaginal element to it, it just makes it better. Like I just, it just adds to it to me or for me. Oh yeah. And I read in the original news articles like that residents from the other cities in Delaware, even from the North, from uh, Newcastle County, were mm-hmm. going to Selbyville down South to search for the monster. So it is even revitalizing interest, not just of uh, people from different other states, but from that state itself. Totally. I mean, it's definitely one of those things. I mean, and it is funny because Delaware doesn't have like, well, it's funny. We obviously have a lot of lore because you just sent me so much of it. But whenever you look at like, you know, state cryptid lists or big cryptid lists, like obviously Delaware doesn't really make it on there. And then if it does, it is the Selbyville Swamp Monster. It's the one that people talk <laughs> about if they do talk about it. And like, oh, yeah. And they say they always say, oh, but it was a hoax. Yes. And that's all they say. It's like a five minute clip. And it's like, yep, this was a hoax. This guy said it was a hoax. And that's it. And like, yeah, I agree. I'm glad we're doing this to kind of uh-huh. uh, shine, sh- shine some light on how how meaningful some of this stuff actually is. Okay, l- let's go into the story of the Selbyville Swamp Monster. So there was already an established legend, allegedly, of a monster mm-hmm. there. We're going to go into that later. But the boom happened in 1964. This was because Ralph Grapperhaus, who was then the editor of the Delmarva News, told his friend Fred Stevens to perpetrate this hoax and dress up as a monster so they may sell more newspapers. (laughs) (laughs) So Fred Stevens got a coon fur coat from his grandma, uh, got some kind of Halloween mask, and a club or a baseball bat with a railroad spike (laughs) through it. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that's my favorite part yeah <laughs> like okay you're you're trying to be a monster but then you carry around a club with a spike through it and like if this was the 80s i feel like that would make sense because there was so many things like thundercats and all these things where there's these giant beasts with swords and like you know it fits in with that imagery and maybe that imagery has been around for way longer but it's just so funny to me that that's <laughs> like the the accessory he decided to go with <laughs> and also i wanted to mention he was 26 at the time yeah and so what what he did he dressed up as the monster went out at night in the swamp near route 54 where uh, a lot of cars are going and when somebody a driver would pass by he would uh, come out of the swamp and <laughs> try to scare them away <laughs> so <laughs> there is this cool news article and the news article was from the same newspaper that they were trying to sell with the hooks i think this is a very interesting news article for many reasons so it says and i think this was so it was published in Salisbury Times. Oh, this is from a Maryland newspaper. Okay. On April 13th, 1964, it was titled Excited Teenagers Say Swamp Monster Moans. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Great title. So it says the monster story started Friday night after a carload of five high school girls reported seeing a hairy moaning creature, half man, or perhaps two-legged animal. Several others and at least one adult have reported hearing the moaning sound and some claim to have seen the creature. But most of the adults of Selbyville seem to think that it is a hoax dreamed up by the teenagers as a joke. Hmm, foreshadowing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or perhaps someone dressed in a Halloween garb to scare people away from the area. (laughs) 
so Scooby-Doo before Scooby-Doo? Maybe maybe contemporary, I can't remember. <laughs> Some say perhaps it's a bootlegger trying to keep people away from his still. And this is a motif that keeps uh, being mentioned a lot related to this. It makes sense for the area. Yeah. The monster hasn't had that effect, however. The road through the area has been visited by hundreds of local people hoping to catch a glimpse of the wild and woolly what's And this is very true <laughs> because when this guy was perpetrating this and causing these uh, this media circus to spark, people started going <laughs> to Selbyville to try and search for the monster. And as Fred Stevens years later said, like he kept doing this for a few months until people would start coming drunk with pickup trucks, throwing dead chickens at him, <laughs> trying to lure the monster. <laughs> He said like he he was often covered in dead chickens and blood because they were throwing chickens at him. <laughs> That's just horrible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like they would come half drunk and try to shoot at him. And he'd still keep doing this until he, oh he just gosh. was worried about his safety because everybody started shooting at him. That's dedication, I'll tell you. I mean, I would have quit with dead chickens. And Delaware, Southern Delaware, we are nothing but chicken coops down there besides the beaches. So it makes sense if anyone's wondering where all these dead chickens came from yeah. there's plenty of dead chickens in southern delaware unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> so you have more dead chickens than live chickens if they're alive they're unhappy about it because they're all cooped up in one of those horrible you know mm. like 30 million chickens inside of a little metal pen type deal it's a uh, it's if you go off the highways in the middle of delaware southern delaware it's just all very i think purdue owns most of the farms down there or is uh paying for them also not the best of practices. So that, that's the story behind this. The dude was trying to sell newspapers. There was also a photo of him caught by his uh, his friend, Ralph Grapper House, and he put it at the front page of the newspaper. Yeah, and it's a very amazing. silly photo. You can find it on the internet. <laughs> silly is a great word for it. <laughs> yeah. And it also has the bat with the railroad spike. Yeah, that bat is intimidating for sure, but I don't think it's going to do much against the guns. <laughs> now think about it like what this dude was doing maybe he was not aware of it this highway is it a highway route 54 so yeah, it is it is already a haunted highway because uh, there have been legends associated with a monster roaming this highway before but there are also legends of a phantom ghost girl with a white gown that would often walk around the highway and sometimes people would see her carrying her head in her hands whoa yeah, yeah that's one of my favorites i had not heard about and when uh, yeah that's just ladies in white are obviously a thing that uh you know a lot of people like joshua cutchin and timothy associated with bigfoot yeah <laughs> exactly exactly so uh that's it but i don't know if i've heard of one that's headless or carrying her head uh, have you heard mm -hmm. of something like that no and that that's a detail that only appears in a few sources but not all of them yeah that's super interesting a lot of them say it is a girl in a white gown that's a ghost essentially now think about it, it that's the symbol of the white lady in white yep but then this guy is dressing as a bigfoot and going along that same highway where <laughs> this ghost is known to to wander so Absolutely. what the heck is this guy doing like what what is he conjuring there yeah and which one's conjuring which like you know mm -hmm. like which came first and which one is or are they just reacting independently and just uh existing it's so interesting i oh, i yeah. really 
I love those connections. And I like that there's a lot of lady in white lore from that uh, Timothy Renner, Joshua Cutchin line where like it's almost like the big feet are her helpers or her kids or things like that, where like they almost don't know what they're doing or they're being not necessarily controlled, but like being utilized. So it'd be interesting that he is completely uh, Fred was completely uh, unaware of that connection. You know, Mm -hmm. that's that's. Oh, there's, yeah, there's I I, really cool I think of Fred here as somebody who went out to have some fun and sell newspapers, but what he exactly. was doing very unintentionally is being used by the phenomenon to remystify the land. Yeah. And so I don't know if you want to get into this part now, but you were telling me about the um, swamps being burned down and regrowing Mm -hmm. and like just thinking about the regrowth as a remystification process is something that uh, has been really interesting to me since you brought it up. Mm -hmm. Well, I I actually wanted to go into that now. Perfect. So that okay. I, I'm glad I could offer a segue. <laughs> so, so, so this swamp, it is uh, located west of Selbyville and along the southern border between Delaware and Maryland. It's called the Great Cypress Swamp. Yep. And as you, Todd, mentioned to me once, this is the most northern place where these cypress trees grow in North America. So that itself is very liminal, but uh, that's only one layer of liminality to the swamp. So uh, the swamp went through two major uh, wildfires. The first was in the 1700s. It was a huge fire that almost burned down people's houses back then. But the most devastating one was in 1930. And this uh, wildfire lasted for eight months. The reason being is because back then, a lot of bootleg uh, distillers had their stills in this swamp, you know, hiding away from the authorities and one of the stills exploded and you know alcohol and stuff like that but the thing is very flammable yeah but that uh, year was very very dry and apart Uh, from that this is a peat bog and there is a load of peat underground now what was burning for eight months was not the uh, swamp you know above the surface swamp but rather the underground peat was burning for eight months that's super weird does that burn everything underground I am not sure man that's interesting (laughs) man by the end the wildfire was contained the swamp, which used to be about fifty to sixty thousand acres large, is now reduced to ten thousand acres. Wow, that's a crazy reduction. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it burned underground. That's crazy. That seems like it would be more harmful. I don't know why. Like it <laughs> seems like uh, all the stuff underground is more important somehow. <laughs> oh yeah, and uh, like that's the liminality of this place. It's known known as the burned swamp by the locals. Oh yeah. So that, that already insinuates a lot of death and destruction. Yeah. Dude, so I've been thinking about this uh layers of liminality thing Vuk and actually I was thinking about it in regards to something that maybe you can tell me if I'm completely wrong in this thought or not. Um okay. but you know, I've talked to you before about how my kids really into science videos and he's been really into carnivorous plants recently, right? Mm-hmm. And he really likes the Venus flytraps and I didn't know that they so it uses so much energy for them to uh, actually try and eat something that there's two little hairs and both of the hairs have to be triggered before it will actually like snap shut and trap mm-hmm. the prey because it doesn't want to waste the energy. And I've been kind of thinking about like the phenomenon if it's the same thing where like 
it can't just have one layer of liminality, but it takes two to be tripped because it doesn't want to waste that energy to communicate or interact because, you know, there's that idea that all of these things take more energy to interact with the different realms or whatever you want to call them. But it's interesting to me how much the layers of liminality seem to be important in these things. Like it's never just one layer. It's always you dig deep and there's four or five other ones. Oh, yeah. I I like that idea of uh, multiple layers of liminality being required to be triggered all at once to spark something. Yeah, it seems because everything isn't simple. It seems like there has to be some sort of complexity and a reason for that complexity, if that makes sense. And it's very funny that you mentioned Venus flytraps because they actually grow in peat bogs. Are you kidding? That's no. wild. Wow. Wow. I just got goosebumps. That's that's a really nice little synchronicity there. <laughs> Even if you want to keep them, you know, as house plants, it is recommended you use peat. That's why ours never worked. Uh, Teddy's gotten one and it was it didn't last very long. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's super interesting. There is the layer of liminality. This is the northernmost part where these cypress trees grow. There is that it burns down twice and is going through a transformation and rebirth now like a phoenix and i did read an article where like they state that this forest has old pine trees and old maple trees that are now because this is becoming swampland they are being kind of sucked underground and into this (laughs) boggy water they are decaying and rotting and being replaced by these cypress cypress trees which are wow essentially transforming it into a new type of forest. That's amazing. But it's still it's still a very transitional ecosystem currently. And there's just got to be something there. Like I think if there's anywhere that's set for an anomalous experience, it's got to be something going through a transition like that. Like there just mm-hmm. seems to be some natural uh, magic to that type of thing. And why wouldn't there be a, a swamp monster <laughs> at that point? I mean, <laughs> regardless of hoaxing. <laughs> well, actually... The Swamp Monster legend is allegedly something that existed before that wildfire in 1930, because somewhere in the 1920s, there is this story that is being mentioned everywhere without any kind of source of two hunters being in the swamp one night and their dog started barking at something and then put their tails under themselves like they were terrified. Mm -hmm. And then these guys started hearing some screaming and moaning and got freaked out and started running. And as they were running, they just heard that something heavy was running towards them and breaking branches. Yeah, I've never, that one I've read a lot. And yet, have you, I mean, it lines up as far as not being able to validate it at all. But like, Mm -hmm. it's one of those things that I feel like every swamp or wooded area has a story like that. Like the the woods behind my parents' house growing up, I remember my neighbor telling me a similar story, but him saying it was, he was saying it was like a buck or some sort of large deer running at him or something like that. But yeah, yeah that's, that's not surprising to me. And I mean, the fact that like, if it was just that story without the Fred Stevenson hoaxing and everything, I don't think that would have made it, you know? <laughs> like, I think that just goes to, to what we were saying before as far as how important what he did in perpetrating that hoax was. I I think that's the story that's mentioned a lot because it alludes to a Bigfoot thing because now we see the Selbyville Swamp Monster as a Bigfoot type thing because of Fred's costume. But originally, this was not a Bigfoot thing, but most of the stories and legends were uh, that this is a ghost. So the most popular one is that the monster is the evil spirit of an old shingle maker who died in the swamp. And another story that uh, occurred that 
that started, you know, being popular after the 1930s is that it is an act- actually a ghost of one of these bootleg uh, booze makers who's uh, still exploded and then he <laughs> burned to death. That's the one I've heard. I didn't hear the one about the shingle maker. That's really, that's interesting for some reason. I don't know. The bootlegger one, I've read a lot though, for sure. Yeah. But I always wondered what made that, or um, not wondered, but like, I always thought it was interesting that it did make that jump from Ghost to Cryptid because of the costume. Like, it's one of those things that it's like he brought it into the real world and made it more physical. And now, yeah, like it got cryptozoology and all that stuff involved. And maybe it would have been better if he dressed up like a ghost instead of a furry monster (laughs) (laughs) well uh i think like if this original story was that it was a shingle maker and then you have this peat bog burning during the 1930s and then right after that they kind of modify the legend and say oh no it's not a shingle maker it's one of these bootleg booze makers you know who burned to death during that fire even though the monster was a thing before the fire so the fire before the fire actually occurring was not an element of the original legend and then in the 60s you have oh this is a bigfoot thing because this dude was dressing as a Bigfoot. Yeah, and that's what folklore does. It grows and it like it makes things more relevant to the times that exist in, you know? That that just winds up. Yeah. I, I love it. I think you're I think you're spot on with that. And I don't know. There's something there's something to all of it and there's something to the idea that I wish any of this there are some interviews. Did you watch any of the interviews with Fred before uh, he passed? There was one that I know I watched. I did not wa- watch them, but I did read the the newspaper interviews the one i watched he was so happy about it i would have loved to talk to him and like find out if like this because it obviously was very meaningful to him in certain ways but i wonder if it sparked anything any kind of weird anomalous events in his own life you know yeah yeah because if you if you convey the trickster and play around with him then the trickster kind of touches you absolutely and when it's entered in i'm always interested the way people enter into these things like if he's coming at this from a place of joy and uh, a place of like this is imbuing some sort of communal meaning or like just something fun like will that change the way that the trickster interacts with you if you instead of going into it like I'm going to fool people and make them think aliens are landing Mm -hmm. or whatever like does the intention of the hoaxer affect the way that the uh, phenomenon interacts that is a very interesting thing because usually we talk about that with experiencers you know like what you Mm -hmm. provide is what you get in return the phenomenon reflects back at you but when that also applied to hoaxers regardless if they believe in the paranormal or not you know yeah, no, because I think it it doesn't require belief. I think belief's a uh, secondary to all of this. So if you're if you're like you said, if you're playing with the trickster, it doesn't matter whether you believe in it or not. It's gonna it's gonna get into your life in one way or another, whether you're cognizant of it or if you're well, just. Well, kind of I going... think the trickster already screwed him over by sending people there to shoot at him, That's and it. then <laughs> he continued to do the same. <laughs> If, if throwing dead chickens at somebody is not a, um, you know, expression of the trickster, I don't know what is. <laughs> Man, I, I just feel so much joy from this. I know cryptozoologists listening to this are like, ah, man, that's such a shitty thing to do to hoax a Bigfoot, blah, blah, blah. Come on, dudes. <laughs> yeah, no, I think everybody can lighten up a little bit and just have fun with it. I mean, at, at the end of the day, what is really cool besides him, you know, being shot at and all of that, like... It 
it's a positive community story. Like that's what people talk a lot about the way that these cryptids and these monsters affect different small towns and stuff like that. And yeah, Selbyville's never going to have like, you know, a, you know, swamp monster fest or things along those lines or anything, but like, it still has an impact that is like greater than I think Fred probably could have ever predicted. Yeah, and and now I'm also thinking uh, these towns who have the monster festivals, the monsters are the symbol of the whole community, but here the monster is a man already. So it yeah. would be like having a fest- festival about Fred, not about the monster. It goes into Which, a very weird place. Now I want to put that festival on. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I shouldn't say I, that. I don't know this dude. I shouldn't. I, I'm, I'm going to like look into this, and he's going to have some very problematic history or something. But I don't. Oh, I don't. Uh, I don't know about it. But no, I think there's something to that for sure. And there, that's interesting for, because if you looked at that at like you know the Mothman Festival, not just being about the Mothman, but being about all the people that were involved in that then Mm -hmm. it kind of takes on a different connotation. Well, I think a lot of people were involved here, even though they were chasing a dude in a costume, uh, because the sightings continued on even after he stopped doing the, the... Absolutely. Monster. So after he stopped uh, portraying the monster, people would still come to Selbyville with all their focused intents to come there and search for a monster. And lo and behold, sometimes they would actually see a monster. Yeah. I mean, I know we are, we've talked about these things in the past and whether it's that intent and that like uh, focus of energy creating an egregore or something along those lines that Mm -hmm. like Fred started and these people are adding to, I think there's something to that and something to just uh if you go there enough like you're going to experience something at this point between all the liminality that we just covered and what fred added on top of that it's just uh it's ripe for it okay so there is this one thing i need to mention so people would ask okay so we can hoax a monster anywhere and then spark an egregore of that monster but the thing is this place has so much layers of liminality and it already has a legend that pre Mm -hmm dates the hoax and then you're putting the hoax on top of the all that as kind of a trigger you know people are now focusing yep. intent on this land which already is very liminal and paranormal and imbued with legend and you are bringing people here to kind of transfer all of this intent and energy to to the established legend and revitalize it so that's Absolutely. maybe why it works it's that multiple trigger thing again like i really think there's something to that and if that finds final trigger is the hoax or is the people coming to uh, find the hoax I think that there's something to it so yeah I think that does kind of explain why you can't just make it out of anything like I think there has to be some sort of kind of criteria right (laughs) yeah I want to mention like Delaware and Hawaii were at a time the only two states without any kind of Bigfoot reports yeah when you sent me that that really kind of blew my mind (laughs) (laughs) and then like a decade ago five Bigfoot reports sparked on the on the that Bigfoot catalog. I can't remember what it's called, but they have five reports now and all of them are from Sussex County, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, is definitely the most rural. Mostly the Bigfoot is uh, with red glowing eyes. My favorite. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to say, like, would these people have encountered Bigfoot in Sussex County if this whole hoax did not transpire and imbue the land with the Bigfoot image? I I think there's something connected there. I definitely do. And it's really interesting how 
uh, the times line up and how it's interesting how we were talking before about Selbyville Swamp Monster originally being thought to be a ghost and then in the you know with Fred Stevenson hoaxing becoming into a cryptid or a Bigfoot realm and that allowing actual Bigfoot sightings to show up here I think that's uh, it makes all the sense in the world to me <laughs> 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 uh, I think in Delaware has legends of the Pukwaji. Yeah, that like, makes a lot. Uh, I was just going to, I don't legends. know enough. Yeah, I was just going to say there's, there's a lot of indigenous lore around for sure. And it's something that I don't know nearly enough about that I'd love to learn more. And I'm, I would say there's probably something similar in Hawaii too. Like there's got to be some sort of like indigenous little hairy people things running around probably. I mean, I don't really, I feel like everywhere has got them. So it's, it's weird when like those modern Bigfoot catalogs, when you sent me that, I was like, that's weird. It seems like there'd be something documented on both of those places at some point. Well, the thing is, maybe there is something, but as it's not perceived as a Bigfoot, it is not manifested as a Bigfoot. But if you do something, let's say like this guy did, and bring the image, the archetypal symbol of Bigfoot to that land, then the land maybe starts reflecting the Bigfoot. Maybe you bring the costume of Bigfoot as he brought it (sighs) to the swamp, and now the swamp has access to the Bigfoot costume. He introduced the image. That makes so much sense. It just it needed the image to go off of. I love that book. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's absolutely I I think you got it. <laughs> There's a lot more weird shit happening around this uh, swamp. So on the Maryland side of the border near Whaleyville, there is what's mm-hmm. known as the Witch's Tree or what was known because it got toward down a few years ago and the witch's tree is this chestnut oak very large chestnut oak that has these bulges on it that look kind of like human faces or whatever ah yeah i'm looking at it now it's freaky It has so much lore tied to it. So there are legends that witches were hanged there or that slaves were hanged there back in the day. Um, There are legends uh, of people seeing spook lights around the tree or photographing orbs on it. And there is a legend of a phantom car uh, right behind the tree, but there is some kind of ditch. So that place is not accessible by car. So there should be no car there, but people still keep seeing a phantom car and a guy reading a newspaper in the car. Uh, During the night, they would hear barking, screaming, or a car engine starting. Wow. Yeah. And also, like, there would be electrical disturbances around the tree. People would lose their phone signal. And if they came near the area with a car, their car would stop. That stuff is so weird. That is so weird. I love it. Do you know, have you heard people talk about the Bigfoot stuff where they make car noises? I heard, I did hear that. <laughs> and is that they ever say, that weird? And, yeah. Like, I was like, really? That's a thing? I don't know why that just popped into my brain when you said that. But uh, that that always that struck me as, oh, sh- I'm sorry. I just hit my microphone. That always struck me as so weird. <laughs> it is very weird because cars, you know, are a mo- modern invention. So it is like something is mimicking or or imitating whatever is com- contemporary at the time. Like imagine in the 1700s, uh, uh, somebody stumbling upon a hairy man in the forest and the hairy man creating car noises. <laughs> <laughs> that, <laughs> that would wouldn't be... happen. No, it wouldn't. It, it, there has to be something like, I don't know, uh, what the hell sound effects would you make in the 1700s? I couldn't even come up with but, something but here. But is it, is it like the 
phenomenon imitating a car noise or is it just us perceiving it as a car noise? That's a great question. I mean, I guess that kind of gets down to whether we're filtering these things or perceiving what's really out there and or if we're kind of co-creating our own experiences with them. And I also wanted to say like regarding this swamp, there are so many stories of witches before the whole, you know, bootleg booze guys, a witch yeah. is actually hiding in these swamps during the the witch trial times. Um, oh, so I wow. did not go go into that, but maybe you you know more about you know uh, witch hunting in Delaware. <laughs> So I I don't I need to look at more stuff for uh, Selbyville because that's super interesting. I, completely random, and I will we don't have to go down too much. But the the road I grew up on in northern Delaware is called Salem Church Road, and the legend is because that is the church. There was a Salem Church on that road, and that was the church where I think three witches were hung. There was three hung in Delaware historically, and uh, that was the road they were hung on. But I don't know if that's actually accurate. But either, that's the only witch lore I know in Delaware. And I didn't know that until I was like moved out of my parents' house and kind of recently. I thought that was super interesting. I think I, I have two books related to like haunted Delaware, stuff like that. And there are so many witch stories, but it's very interesting to me, like in the, let's say, 17, 1800s, it's, it's witch stories, you know, witches haunting mm-hmm. these places. Even the wedge, there is a story of a, the witch of the wedge. But then you have during the Prohibition era stories of... Of, of these booze bootleg guys in the woods and then you know these ghosts of shingle makers become ghosts of booze makers and then in the mm-hmm. 60s when bigfoot is a huge thing in monsters and cryptozoology now it's monsters yep that is super fascinating and there's definitely something to that progression that it says something about the uh the lineage of all of this now as we were talking about cars going haywire let's go a bit north of selbyville and talk about the cat man of what town is it (laughs) Can't remember. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, Catman of Long Long Cemetery. The town is. I'm sorry, I just completely uh, Frankfurt, Delaware. I just had a brain okay. fart there, Vuk. Sorry about that. Frankfurt, but it's Delaware. uh, yeah, yeah, Frankfurt. It's Catman of Frankfurt, Delaware, and it's Long Cemetery is the uh, the graveyard in which he resides. Okay, and why is he called the Catman? So this is one of my favorite Delaware legends that I didn't know about until recently. And in general, he was a a cemetery caretaker. Taker, and he had what they said were very feline attributes for the time that he had a piercing feline stare and that's one of the most like descriptive things I've read in so long where I'm like, you can just feel that eyes be like darting through you style but yeah he was called the cat man while he was alive because he looked like a cat and he was a cemetery caretaker and essentially after he passed away he was legend to still be seen roaming the cemetery and protecting it from people breaking in doing like seance or vandalism or things like that and uh, they said that he transformed into even further of a cat looking creature and has so many different little classic paranormal tropes and one of them is that if you knock on a certain gravestone or a certain wall he'll make it so your car can't start and it'll be dead completely for like 20 minutes and then he'll it'll start again and you can leave and that is one of those things that I feel like kind of crosses the bounds of aliens and all kinds of weird stuff 
stuff that you hear with cars and electronics. Also, like this guy was an actual real guy. I think there was some kind of crypt in the graveyards for him. He was buried there and then that was either transported or removed. Completely taken down because of <laughs> uh, vandalism and stuff. Yeah, the uh, the owners of the graveyard wanted to give him, it was like a memorial to him. So he had an above ground crypt where you where I think it was maybe the biggest plot in the cemetery because they really wanted to thank him for his uh, work throughout the years. And then that was torn down because people, I'm pretty sure that's where the urban legend came in, where if you went and you knocked on his grave three times, then you would either see the cat man or the cat man would make it so that your car would no longer start. Hmm. And he, so the grave was torn down and he was disinterred and moved to a different cemetery still. So the cat man's body is no longer, uh, no longer at that cemetery. I, I find it very interesting that he has a name that we can find in the records. You know, it's not like with so many of these bridge monsters, which are always half human, half animal. Like, the, yeah. let's say the donkey lady of San Antonio, Texas, which has a donkey yes. lady bridge associated. Then, you know, the goat man of Maryland or the public monster. Or I talked with Karen Stolzno recently, one that she researched. I can't remember which state it was but a frog boy wow i don't know that one but i want to (laughs) it's always animal and then man lady boy whatever yeah yeah no you don't need to get more creative than that that's for sure yeah it was super interesting and it's one of those ones where i went down a rabbit it apparently is still very popular for people to go and ghost hunt at this cemetery if you look at the cemetery you can see why it's like an old family cemetery that backs up to a big like wooded line and like if you watch some of these there's a bunch of youtube ones where like it's people just running away from night vision things that you can't see at all but it definitely has a very like you know old graveyard feel where i can see why people get creeped out about it i find it very interesting that the part of the story is like he would chase away teenagers who would come there to perform seances or use ouija boards very satanic panic so this is probably something that sparked in the 70s or 80s that would be my guess i was trying to find like kind of where or when this all started as far as the legend and the lore because I mean so the uh, the graveyard I think is from 1918 or the 20s or something along those lines it was like a revolution or um, I'm sorry I'm pretty sure the graveyard was from the Revolutionary War originally and I think that he started working there in like the 1920s or 30s so like it's kind of back in the day for sure and like that would line up with the seances and the uh, spiritual movement of the of the time as far as people trying to communicate with spirits and everything. So I could see some young, some youths like going and doing some weird stuff in cemeteries. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know when the actual lore started. I want to say here, so BFRO is the Bigfoot uh, database yes. thing with five Bigfoot encounters. All in Sussex and screaming was a very important motif in those cases. And screaming is a huge motif with the legends of the Selbyville Swamp Monster that even Fred was moaning and screaming while he was (laughs) portraying the monster but like you have then the witch's tree which is associated with screaming sounds and then you have this so while we're around this southern area and listeners like you said what's the name of the catman town frederick yeah frederick delaware frederick delaware so that town is like right the next town north of salbyville that's why we are mentioning it because it is a town with this whole legend associated with it and yet it is 
so close to Selbyville and all of this stuff. Another close thing here is what's known as Old Maggie's Bridge, and it's essentially the Sussex version of a crybaby bridge. So this website where I found this says, according to local legend, a pregnant woman named Maggie got in an automobile accident along a short bridge in Seaford, Delaware, and was decapitated and died. Her spirit still wanders the bridge searching for the child that died with her. Some say you can conjure her spirit by stepping out of your car on the bridge and yelling, Maggie, I have your baby. People also report seeing figures dancing around in the woods surrounding the bridge. Was the Maggie of the story real? Well, no one knows for sure, but a local cemetery does have a grave marker for a Maggie Bloxham who died very young. So again, this motif with cars... Yeah, that's so interesting. And there's a lot. I mean, it's wild. The decapitation fact. And then, you know, we were just talking about the lady in white with uh, carrying her head. That's that's two headless uh, beings in one little area there. There's some real, real weird stuff with that. Ah, that's, that's I did not connect to <laughs> I did not connect those two, but damn, man. <laughs> now, uh, do you know, that, was there any reportings of the uh, Crybaby Bridge ghost? Like, that would be interesting if they are the same person, same entity, just kind of wandered away a little bit. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Went down the highway a, a couple miles. There's something too, and just speaking from like going to that area of Delaware, and like, it's funny because we talk about things in the paranormal, like hot spots and these um, places where the veil is thin and whatever you want to call it. And I love that they're not relegated to any one particular landscape or any kind of like particular, like they can be anywhere. If one of these like hotspots can be in Southern Delaware, which definitely has that weird mystic old feeling, they can be anywhere. And I think that's a really cool thing. Well, it's nice that you mentioned that because we're going to go more North uh, into Sussex County and we are going to go into Lewis now which is also yes. a town. Is it a seaport town? You probably know. It is. Okay. It's uh right now it's probably the second most affluent uh beach town in Delaware. Maybe it's the most. That or Rehoboth, one of the two, but it's uh right now it's lots and lots of rich, rich people. <laughs> okay, so no- now it is, you know, a completely different setting. It's not this swampland, though there is a wetland right north of it. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a national park thingy, but it is more a saltwater wetland instead of a freshwater one. Uh exactly. So, you know, completely different uh, environment, uh, even ecologically. And yet, still, this area is full of high strangeness. (laughs) Still plenty of liminality. I mean, where the uh, where the earth meets the water, it's it's as liminal as it gets, right? Oh, yeah. And also, I wanted to point out, like, the Selbyville Swamp is a freshwater swamp. But still, this whole area is along the seacoast. So you have this transition of seawater into fresh. Water. I don't even know how that happens. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I wanted to say, so in this Lewis town, there is not much weirdness in the town except for this museum. Oh man, I need to pronounce this. Swanendal Museum, whatever. It it houses a Fiji mermaid there that is kind yeah. of a local attraction. Yeah, it's been there forever and I saw it and did not know what I was looking at for so long growing <laughs> up. <laughs> so you were never into like Ripley's Believe It or Not or something like that? Not. So I vacationed in Lewis for like the first five years of my life and it's like it, it's a bay town so it's on the bay and it was perfect for when like me and my brother were really little and 
weren't into the big ocean. But uh, yeah, that was part of the little historic part of the town that my parents would drag us to one day and none of us liked it. So I don't think we really paid it much attention. <laughs> that was probably the highlight of that whole day. There is a building in Lewis with a cannonball stuck in it. And we really liked that building too. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like th- this Fiji mermaid thing is not you know very interesting now from a paranormal perspective. I I know it's an oddity totally. from the 1800s. Yeah, um, but it's just something that you stumble upon there and think, wow, that's weird. But you're not uh, yeah. uh, even aware of what kind of weirdness this whole town is surrounded with. So right up north is the Prime Hook N- uh, National Wildlife Refuge. Were you ever there? Yeah. So we uh, they have surf fishing beaches and they have a lot of wild life programs that we used to do growing up okay so allegedly like since the 2000s there have been reports of some kind of dog cryptid there that seems to be a hybrid between a pug and a maned wolf whoa i have never heard of this that's amazing yeah (laughs) and did you say a pug and a wolf yeah what the hell so like i have no idea what that means maybe it's like a pug face (laughs) i want to draw this like i want to draw a wrinkly adorable wolf man like that sounds so cute i'm into it (laughs) maybe maybe you do that for the episode art (laughs) (laughs) it done (laughs) like the the selfieville swamp monster and around him all these weird other cryptids we talk about way into it (laughs) okay so there is not much you know documentation on these sightings and they started from the 2000s but then you have something that is much more historical and much more weird and actually led to people's deaths very nearby so on the east coast of this lewis town is a phenomenon known as the corpse lights of the town please (laughs) i never know these okay Cape Henlopen. <laughs> okay. So you can tell the listeners what that's about because you covered it on your podcast. Yeah. So Cape Henlopen is, uh, it's one of the, I'd say it's probably one of the biggest visit or most frequently visited uh, state parks down at the beaches. And they're known for all kinds of different stuff as far as like hikes and like just beautiful scenery and things. But they're also known for these corpse lights. And essentially there was at one point a light house there that was torn down like really early on and has been gone forever and even since the lighthouse has been torn down there are still these lights that will guide uh different ships to the rocky shores and make them crash essentially there's a lot of history that is definitely probably somewhat problematic in the way it's told because it's a lot of like uh the white settlers came here and were cursed by a wedding of the indigenous people that they interrupted so the corpse lights now lead the uh settlers ships to crash and all this stuff and then there's some the most famous one is the Devonshire and that was a big thing revolutionary warship and it crashed and I think like 200 people died or something like that so that was a big one and they say the Devonshire can now be seen as a ghost ship and things along those lines in the area but the corpse light has also been known to like guide people off the beach into the dunes in which to get lost and never be seen again so it's not like just uh, having to do with seafaring stuff which I thought was interesting and lines up with a lot of other kind of uh, light phenomena in the paranormal. Also, you reminded me of this. I did not take note of it because I cannot determine if it's uh, Sussex or another county. Because listeners, we're keeping everything like uh, Southern Delaware in this episode to make it out to be, you know, a, a hotspot or a window area. But I did read some account off the coast of Delaware, a ship that was in 
engulfed in a kind of cloud or mist. And all of the people inside the ship were feeling some kind of electric energy and all of their hairs stood up. That was around Dover. And that, so super interesting you brought that up. And I wish I could remember there's a name for that uh, encounter. I just recently saw, read about this. But that's around Dover, which is super interesting. It's a little bit north. It's the middle of Delaware. It's Kent County. And Dover is the home of our military base. Um, And what Dover military base's main job is, if you die in service anywhere in the world uh, as an American, you get flown through the Dover military air base and that's where your body's processed. So anything around there has always been super interesting to me because it's such a giant spot of just kind of death and like weird energy. And uh, yeah, that happened right off the coast of Dover, right around there. Yeah, I'm trying to find it now, but I can't. And it uh, also just always reminded me of the Philadelphia Experiment stuff. Like I think oh yeah, there's oh yeah. a, a lot of parallels to that there with the electric phenomenon and the the fog and everything. But uh, since we're talking about Dover and like the northern part of Delaware, I need to mention here before we go into these other accounts that the Jersey Devil was a huge thing in Delaware back in the early 1900s. I even found a whole newspaper article. I'm not going to read it here because we're not talking about Northern Delaware, but the newspaper article said, creature attacks night officer who says it screams like a lion. Downstate citizens say it, many alarmed. And it goes on (laughs) to say like, the uncanny creature known variously as the Air Hoss, the Leeds Devil, the Jabbernosk, <laughs> <laughs> and the Grossock. <laughs> So those many are names, amazing man. words. Those are amazing, and and there there goes the screams again, man. That that's another one with the screaming in Delaware. It says that it's believed the monster came from Philadelphia, where it has been scaring people for several nights. This is a whole article, so it's from the book Monsters in Print, which was made by the guys from the Pine Barrens Institute. I have that book. Mm-hmm. It they collected a lot of these newspaper articles of the Leeds or Jersey Devil in Delaware, but that's for a whole. Other episode, but I do bring That's it up awesome. because uh, similar similar things happen in Sussex down south. Absolutely, that's super interesting though. And I think you said we're going to get into some of the uh, kangaroo fun that happened down there, right? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> so <laughs> I have here another book and a whole timeline of stuff that happened in uh, Delaware, but I only marked the stuff that happened in Sussex because, you know, we're trying to be one of those guys who want to make a fake window area out of nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, what is this book called? Uh, Okay, so this book is called Amazing Encounters with Monsters and Mysteries of East Coast North America, Volume 1, Connecticut to New Jersey, and it's by George Mitrovich, which many may have noticed throughout the few past years has been pumping out a lot of these books on Amazon for like two or three bucks that are like 700 pages long. Uh, Do you know, Todd, who Albert Rosales is? Yeah, totally. Okay, so George Mitrovich is like the new Albert Rosales. And while Albert does these compilations of UFO adjacent entities, George mm-hmm. does everything at all high That's strangeness so cool. and cryptids, even. That's awesome. I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah. Now, this whole book has like a timeline of Delaware high strangeness. So, related to Sussex, the first entry is for 1946. It says, at dusk in July 1946, 
2006, two high school students in Indian River Inlet in Sussex County, Delaware, reported that a disc came up from the water, turned, and then descended back into the water. Whoa. <laughs> and the jo- George likes to put these little blurbs in for a lot of entries. He said, very odd behavior for a meteorite. <laughs> <laughs> i love that i love that no that's yeah the, that's the- this is before the ufo uh, epidemic because you know that flying saucer was coined in 1947 um uh-huh. but you know flying saucer was not a thing back in 1946 so i imagine somewhere somebody said oh this was a meteorite but it would Absolutely. be very strange for a meteorite to come out of the water and then go back into the water yeah i don't think that's ever happened <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it. That's so funny. When we're talking about flying saucers, and this was a disc. Mm, interesting. You know that yeah. Kenneth Arnold coined the term flying saucer, or rather he did not, but rather was he misquoted was, by the... Yeah. So, yeah, and absolutely. you know that he had his famous encounter over Mount Rainier while flying an airplane in, I think, July of 1947. Yeah. Well, in 1947, in June... A month earlier, the 2nd of June, above Rehoboth Beach near Lewis, Delaware, a pilot by the name of Forrest Wenyon was in an aircraft flying north at an altitude of 1,400 feet when he saw a silvery jar-shaped object 15 inches across in front of his plane. And the the 15 inches is relative, you know, because of distance. The aerial object was flying at 1,000 to 10,000 miles per hour. I mean... (laughs) Such a large gap, but okay. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Heading east on a straight course at the same altitude, and it had a silver white fire exhaust. Whoa, that's badass. I like that it's a jar shape. That's pretty Uh cool. (laughs) <laughs> like it, I, I'm thinking like mason jar, like that style, you think? I don't know, man. That's the problem with the, these books from George. He just puts everything down. But I mean, the dude is pumping so many books that are 700 yeah. pages long. So he just copies, pastes yeah. everything. <laughs> totally, totally. That makes a lot of sense. But, but that's I, amazing. I think I it's, love that. it's very interesting that this was a month before the Kenneth Arnold sighting. So people, Absolutely. The pilots were actually seeing UFOs midair before that. Yeah. And like that's interesting because of the whole idea that like Kenneth Arnold's the one who entered that into the popular mythology, and that's one of part of the reason that people started seeing so many. But finding these accounts that you know predate that show that that's not that's not the whole truth. <laughs> yeah. So now 1966, it says in Roxana in Sussex County, Delaware, during August of 1966, a UFO was seen to land. Short but sweet. <laughs> that's what George that's, said. That's. I like it. His notes are great. I'm gonna. I like this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I'm gonna find more info on that. Uh, like maybe try searching Roxana 1966 UFO. The, yeah, I don't think that's gonna help you, Vuk. You know, <laughs> Delaware. It's very appropriate. We are the small wonder. So these uh, short blips of encounters, I, I think, line up with that. <laughs> okay, so now we go back to Selbyville Swamp and the Selbyville Swamp Monster. So this is 1970. 76 and by this time our boy Fred wa- was not no longer you know portraying the monster. Yeah. He hung up the bat. He hung up the bat like a decade before this. 
<laughs> so around 3.30 a.m. on 6th of December 1976 near Milford in Sussex County, Delaware, John Brady and Ronald Pullman were driving home to Milford and were at a place called Slaughter Neck when they saw yep. in an adjacent cornfield about 100 yards away two tall figures, 8 to 9 feet tall. They were standing Whoa. close together as if they were hugging each other and they appeared to be a pine green color. No traces could be found of them the next day and this is the domain of the burnt swamp monster that that's what george says in the notes that's amazing that is so cool so slaughter neck is right by a place called slaughter beach which is like remember <laughs> i yeah the names are great and i was saying to you i don't i don't think we were recording when i was mentioning to you that whole area is part of that area where the um, horseshoe crabs are collected to harvest their blood because it's used in i think medical device testing or something like that horseshoe blood is super important for saving people's lives and i can't remember why mm-hmm. but i know it's because they're like a living fossil um so they uh slaughter beach which is right next to slaughter neck is one of the prime collection spots like you can go there at certain times and just see like hundreds of these you know horseshoe crabs lining the the shores so that's really interesting that it's all around there that like natural power is is, is something and to a, it. again dude liminality because horseshoe crabs are uh, living fossils yeah that's so true that's like as liminal as a creature that you can be <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like literally, that spiky spine tail is hanging out in the fa- in the past. That's so cool, I, dude. Finding those, cool, I used to only find the dead ones growing up on the beach, and we would just like pick them up by the by the spine or whatever comes off the back of them, and we would just carry them around and collect like thirty of them and think it was the coolest thing in the world. And I had no clue until way later how like special those animals were. Yeah, or are <laughs> I'm I'm not aware if they are endangered or not. I don't think so. I think they're doing pretty good, but I could be wrong. Everything seems mm-hmm. to be struggling these days. So, <laughs> Again, I have to emphasize this is a whole decade after Fred stopped doing the monster. And it says now, in 1979, there were reports in August and September of 1979 of a strange creature called the Monster of Burnt Swamp in Sussex County. Strange footprints were found in Millville and plaster casts were made of them under a rabbit hutch. Descriptions of the monster also called the Selbyville Swamp Monster, is of a hairy humanoid, though there are also ghost-like descriptions. The monster has been reported since 1920s. One night in 1979, Mr. Powell of Ocean View in Sussex County heard strange noises in the woods. When he investigated, he saw an unusual beast emerge from the forest and stand under the security light about 100 feet away. It then hopped away in a kangaroo fashion. Whoa. In the next morning, long scratch marks were found on the ground that resembled those of a cat. Now, I think it's very interesting because when the northern part of Delaware was going through this whole Jersey Devil epidemic in the 19, in 1909, I believe, it also had numerous cases of footprints being found of the Leeds Devil. And now you have another kangaroo thing spotted, but uh, down south where the Selbyville Swamp Monster was being sighted yeah. and also leaving footprints. That's so interesting. And dude, you said Ocean View is where that happened, right? Yeah. So Ocean View is that's so 
wild. Uh, my aunt has a beach house in Ocean View. So every year, like for a while now, we've been going down to Ocean View as a family. I may have talked to you about this, but Ocean View, the beach house in Ocean View is the one that my whole family swears is haunted. Like everybody in my family has had an experience there. Like my aunt says it's my Nana, like her mom and her best friend that passed away that haunt the place. And my little sister says that she's seen a straight up like full bodied, like Revolutionary War apparition style ghost. And like everybody in my family has these different ghosts. And it's so funny that that is in that same spot to me because that house was built for them. It's a brand new house. And like it's just on this like really crazy piece of land, obviously, like we're talking about that there's something to this area. And yeah, that's that's <laughs> fun. And it, it was funny to me because my family doesn't talk to me about goat. Like they don't, they know I like this stuff, but they don't really talk to me about it. But what brought it all up was me talking to my, my cousin talking to me about Skinwalker Ranch because of the TV show. And I was like, yeah, you know, I, I don't really watch it, but we can talk about all this stuff. I, I know plenty at this point. And uh, then he, I was like, so what do you think? Like, do you have ghost stories? Or like, and he started getting into all this stuff. And I was like, oh, so you think it's one thing. My aunt thinks it's something completely different. My sister, th- like e- everyone's experiencing this phenomenon completely differently. And this was like something that came to me a while ago before I was really into the paranormal and realized that, you know, the co-creation thing and that you bring, you you get out what you bring to it. So that was a kind of a, a nice little synchronicity that that's where the story came from. So I was talking with Jordan last night because I'm, I'm not a fan of fiction. And mm-hmm. he says like fiction can be used so for psychoanalysis and sociological analysis, you know. But I see mm-hmm. the paranormal as that way, you know. But if the paranormal is a mirror to our subconsciousness, then you can actually use the paranormal to psychoanalyze people. I'd be oh, asking, 100%. okay, wh- why do you interpret this phenomenon as such? And what does this, that tell about you? But through you, what does it tell us about us? <laughs> Absolutely. Having that conversation with my aunt where she was telling me like, so my Nana was uh, very special to me and her passing away when I was in high school. It was that like cliche, really big thing where, you know, you you realize life is uh, short and etc. And so when my aunt told me that like she thinks my Nana lives in her beach house, I was kind of bummed. I was like, wait, Nana's just hanging out in your beach house that you only live at like part of the time. That seems kind of shitty, right? Like, shouldn't she be like off like like exploring the uh, the cosmos or doing something cooler than that. Um, but to my aunt, it was like super comforting and like super special. And like, why would Nana want to be anywhere else than with her, you know, daughter? And, her, and like, it's just, it's exactly that. And yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Now, I wanted to say here, uh, this kangaroo motif yes. is not something that just George here wrote about, but I have an encyclopedia of cryptozoology and it has like just a mention that there were were phantom kangaroo sightings in Delaware. And then I saw in another cryptozoology book that I have a mention of Delaware with phantom kangaroos. And it seems that in 1979, there was a flap of phantom kangaroos right around Selbyville uh, Swamp. So weird, man. So weird. And like, I I mean, I love just the words phantom kangaroos. That's just something that needs to be said more often, I feel like. Um, But uh, yeah, that's such a weird thing to be associated with the air 
area that obviously kangaroos are not indigenous to Delaware, and like <laughs> they're like. But such then a- again, the the Leeds Devil, you know, it started as a hoax uh, of a kangaroo being painted escaped green. kangaroo. Yeah, and or oh, paint. No, that's right. Yeah, kangaroos are one of those, and maybe this is like a cultural thing, if that makes sense. I guess, but they just seem silly to me. Like I love that they're just like kind of. I know they're kind of aggressive and mean as an animal. Oh, yeah, I think, they're, but they're uh, buff as heck. Totally. Yeah, and I, it's probably just the kangaroos that broke my brain, but they just seem like just the silliest, floppiest, weirdest animals. So the fact that they're associated with like these, you know, very scary, anomalous encounters always kind of tickles me. Like it always makes me think that's like there, there's a purpose to that duality. Well, here in September of 1979, we have more cases. So it says witnesses described seeing a black four footed animal less than two feet tall that had two foot long long tapered tail that curled at the end the creature Whoa. leapt like a kangaroo and strange tracks were left that were four inches by four and a half inches and this was in concord sussex county delaware and what george wrote as the blurb is how many different types of burnt swamp monster are there <laughs> <laughs> that's a perfect blurb george is nailing it this is great yeah that's one of the wildest descriptions i've heard yet yeah I don't know if if it's like a kangaroo, like it's a four-footed thing, but leaps like a kangaroo, but has a two-foot-long tapered tail that curls at the end. Yeah, that the t- the tail descriptions was really throwing me, to be honest. It almost sounds like a little devil tail. That's really weird. <laughs> ah, maybe the lead's devil exactly. made an appearance 70 years <laughs> later. Exactly. Coming back. I love it. So then we go into 82, 1st of April of 82. Oh, man. 1st of April. A five-foot-long crocodile was caught in Dover of Kent County. I'm just putting this here because we have phantom kangaroos, we have phantom crocodiles. But then in 84, a mystery animal like a big black cat was seen in the summer of 84 in Harrington, Kent County, though that's much more north than Sussex. But in another source, I found this. So it says that nine Black Panther reports were reported in Delaware during 1993 to 2001 and this is among uh, 69 known East Cougar sightings. So out of those 69 Cougar sightings, 9 were of Black Panthers. Yeah, that's amazing and I I remember growing up and hearing people talking about the Black Panther sightings in the mid-90s and like hey, I think I mentioned to you before that there was a neighbor of mine that had emus as a little farm and he had one that was killed by by a cougar, he said, you know, whether it was a black panther or just a random mountain. Regardless, it was a large feline that probably shouldn't have been in Delaware. And that stuff happens. Like, did I ever tell you about what happened or about the uh, bear that came to Wilmington in 2020? So like in January of 2020, I work in or at that point, I was working in the roastery a lot more, which is in the city of Wilmington. And it's not a giant city, but it's it's a city city. And as we are working, all these cops started showing up and there was a um, black bear just walking down the street and we all just looked at each other like what the fuck are we really seeing that so of course we ran out the door because you know there's a bear walking down the city streets and we thought there so yeah there was just a random like wild black bear walking around and black bears aren't known to live in Delaware we're not supposed to have bear populations they didn't catch it they followed it till it got back out into the woods and they never caught it it just went away or uh, that that always uh, I thought was a weird start to a very weird 
year <laughs> as far as uh you know the pandemic and everything happening right after that pretty much um but yeah delaware has these weird random animal sightings for sure and that would still go uh, into this motif of window areas like even yeah misplaced animals and uh, weird animal behavior yeah totally and like you know we've been talking about keeping this all to the southernmost uh sussex county in delaware but to drive all of delaware is like an hour and a half so like all of this stuff is close really <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> i think like the the most high strangeness uh, happens at the very south where it's this marsh swampland because that exactly. itself is uh is ecologically a very transitional place you know it's yes one biome yes. being taken over by another biome and now that you say that dude delaware is the transition from the north to the south and like i know that that's like it it means something big in the united states you know like there is a very big divide to this day as far as culture and stuff like that and like Delaware kind of rides that liminal border and I think that's definitely something interesting I've never really thought about before <laughs> yeah it's yeah man that's so weird it brings me back to this to this idea of the wedge and that it t- yeah. took so so long to even determine what state it belongs to and that's why a lot of criminals back then went to the wedge to do whatever they did because nobody <laughs> could prosecute them it was like international waters no man's land yeah <laughs> that's so cool that's so cool so dude we have two big ones here in the 90s in lewis okay so the first one is in 1993 one night of december 1993 in lewis sussex county delaware a 12 year old witness was leaving a friend's house and was about ready to mount his bicycle on the driveway when he noticed a fast moving object flying over a nearby highway the road seemed oddly deserted for that time of night the thing seemed to be triangular in shape with red lights at each of the points. The object started to come closer to the witness as he remained staring at it in some sort of half fear and half curiosity. And at about 500 yards away, it began to change shape and adopted a humanoid shape with red glowing eyes and red points where its hands would be. So <laughs> a UFO. Yeah, and it transformed into a humanoid. That's amazing. Uh-huh. With Whoa. red eyes matching the Bigfoot descriptions of the place, man. That is so cool. I've never heard. I mean, I've definitely uh, heard of, uh, you know, sentient style UFOs or UFOs as living beings. But one that transforms like that. That's beautiful. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it says it had a black outline and continued to float silently towards the witness with its neck bent at an awkward angle oh man that's amazing uh i love how that is just like the least i don't it's the opposite of nuts and bolts like it's just incredibly just fantastical that's amazing oh, yeah and and when i started reading it you're like okay he saw a black triangle whatever yeah I like checked out as soon as you said red dots on the, I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. Uh, <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, wow. That's really cool. And wh- what part of Delaware did you say that happened in again? This is in Lewis. That was in Lewis too? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Lewis is weird, dude. That's so cool. I love it. It says, at this point, the witness jumped on his bicycle and attempted to chase the object. He remembers hearing a buzzing sound in his ears that gave him a terrible headache. It apparently took the witness almost two hours to reach home, which was only five minutes away from his friend's house giant missing time wow (laughs) 
Wow, that's amazing. I I can't imagine trying to chase something that morphs into a humanoid and like that's just another level of uh human right there. <laughs> and like is it an abduction he has missing time yeah. or is it like the missing time you have when when encountering fairy beings? Yeah. I don't know, but there's definitely I that definitely has some fey elements I feel like. It's almost like a camouflaged itself as a UFO and then morphed into its uh I don't know if it's like a true essence or what uh, being one of those images being co-created once it like locked in on the kid that's interesting i don't know that's really weird dude <laughs> <laughs> and the final one we have is 1998 another entity monster encounter so in february of 1998 or 1999 on route 24 in the angola area near lewis of Sussex County. It says, and this is a first person story, my brother and a friend were meeting up with me and another friend at home. When they came in the house, they were both filled with fear with what they had just seen. It was winter time and it was also the evening around 7 p.m. and raining. They were driving down Route 24 near the Angola Light when something ran across the road on all fours. Then when it got across the road to the field, they both said it stood up and had red eyes. I just started to watch the television show Finding Bigfoot and remember that night. Called my brother up again to get the details to see if I remembered it right. <laughs> so, wow. Red eyes again. That's awesome. But it's also like a four-legged creature crossing the road and then yeah. standing up on two legs and looking at you with red eyes. Yeah, dude, that's another. So both of those are both of those red eyed encounters are like way freakier to me than like a Bigfoot with red eyes or something. Just that like, I don't know, uh, going from quadruped to bipedal thing really freaks me out. Oh, and yeah. And especially go going from triangle thing to humanoid thing. Yeah. Yeah, way more, way more, dude. That's a whole nother level. Actually, you know what? That one might freak me out less just because it's so like psychedelic or like just completely off the wall. Well, yeah, <laughs> I and can't e even... even it said like the boy was half uh, in fear and half in curiosity. Yeah, where if it was something more primal and just like a beast, that would probably hit that like lizard brain fear thing more, I feel like. But yeah, either way, the, the red eyes in Delaware are, are here to stay. That's really interesting interesting to me i think that and the screams are like the two big consistencies that i took away from all those stories that mm -hmm. I, we talk a lot about different consistencies through paranormal stuff and screams is something that i haven't really thought of very much but like obviously is present in so much of it i also want to point this out so there are local indigenous legends of the lenape tribe Mm -hmm. who lived in Delaware of the, and I don't know how to pronounce it. It's M-H-U-W-E. So Mahue or Mue, but essentially it is the Lenape tribe's version of the Wendigo. Exactly the same. It is an ice giant that is formed through cannibalism or if you go mad during the winter out of the cold. Gotcha. Uh, so there are legends of, you know, these giant creatures, but also per their uh, legends, you can actually cure somebody who was transformed into this maue by uh, nurturing them back to health. Wow, that's really cool. I am not familiar enough with those uh, uh, legends or folklores to, to compare anything, but I that seems like a, I don't feel like I've heard that aspect of it a lot. And 
that's I love that. Like that I think I was telling you the other day that I was listening to something about the Green Man and I didn't realize how much of that folklore and mythology has to do with uh regrowth and nourishment and you know, I always kind of heard of it more of a protector and forest or like elemental uh thing, but apparently the nurturing is a huge part of it, which is just beautiful to me. Cool that you bring that up because maybe maybe the Swellbeville Swamp Monster is some form of green man archetype i don't know absolutely i think it fits the bill pretty well i mean there's got to be multiple iterations of these types of things as far as like how people experience them and there's no reason that like people around here wouldn't experience it as a ghost in in the swamps or a uh, bigfoot thing in the swamps after that image was brought by fred stevenson etc like the green man is one of my favorites but i think he could definitely be experienced in different forms like it's all about the the feeling you take away from it i guess i also find it very ironic that uh we not we but people in the cryptozoology community criticized fred for taking a costume and conveying the creature but it seems that this creature and its whole legend has been assuming many different costumes throughout the yeah. <laughs> centuries and decades you know absolutely it's just picking different masks i think that's uh-huh. that, that's a that's a very so, uh, beautiful way to look at it. So how ironic is it that in the 60s, this guy would get the idea, oh, I should convey this monster by putting a mask on my face when when the monster is all about uh, changing the mask that it wears constantly. It's perfect. I think it's uh, it, it, it's ref- they're, they're reflecting each other. And like they, I really think that they there's something to that. And I mean, I hope someone else starts doing this, to be honest, Vu. I would love for there to be another. So he has a son that is uh, getting older, but he has talked about like redoing the hoax. I I found one interview where the son was being like, sometimes I think about picking up the bat and I'm like, wow, that would be cool. Like if it was a family thing, like, I don't know. Like, yeah, there's this whole thing. I feel like uh, happens in cycles with different masks. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm now dumbfounded a bit. I'm thinking about this. So do you think that Fred actually kind of revitalized a dying legend, like uh, provided it more power, more attention, more focus from other people. And now we have essentially provided this land enough energy, let's say imaginal energy to create new mythologies. I definitely think there's something to that. I, uh, I think all of, all of the rework like every time a story is retold or every time a uh, a myth is passed down i think there's always room for embellishment and uh, new ideas and mythologies to form within those mythologies like i think the retelling and the re the remystifying of this land is definitely an open uh playing field for different things to kind of manifest it reminds me a lot of this paganistic concept where you would assume the costume and mask of some deity and convey that deity. Yeah, I think that's dead on. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I think there's a lot to connecting with these areas and like re making them purposeful in your life and making your life kind of like we talk about these places a lot of the times and I think we forget like 
when you live there, there's a whole different association to it. And someone like Fred Stevenson or uh, Fred Stevens, when you read that uh, obituary, you realize how much he probably he cared about Selbyville and how much that like this myth meant a lot to him. And that's like that imbues not only the myth with power but that whole area has some extra extra juice to it through it oh yeah and for jordan's sake i want to say like think about uh, cherubosco indiana and oh yeah the beast giant of Bosco, turtle giant turtle yeah <laughs> that was probably faked by that guy who was constantly trying to find the turtle and hunt it down but still even like if it is a hoax it spawned an identity for the whole town Absolutely. And I love that we're talking about this myth that didn't like really spawn a giant identity for a town or have any festivals come up from it, but like is still super important in a bunch of different ways. Well, maybe it didn't. Maybe it did not because uh, the guy came out and said, yeah, I did that. Imagine if that happened for all of these other monsters, which probably are, you know, hoaxes (laughs) of which we have festivals now. That's a good point. You know, I didn't think about that. I, I think you might be right. <laughs> it's hypo- hypocrisy on our side, you know? Like, we yeah. will celebrate a monster, but the moment that we uncover, let's say, the truth, which is much much more magical to me, then we just stop caring about it. Yeah, not only magical, but, like, it, the truth, especially in these types of cases, just makes everything uh, more real. Like, I, it doesn't matter that he was dressing up as a... As a, as a swamp monster, the swamp monster makes it, it almost brings the corporealness to it. Like, we you know, there's this giant disconnect in the paranormal between these entities being spiritual and psychological or psychedelic and physical and real. And the hoaxers kind of, at, they offer a bridge between those two worlds in some ways, if that makes sense. Yeah, and also, like, the monster is there yeah. spiritually in a more um, metaphoric, paranormal esoteric sense the legend and he is just putting on the mask of the monster to convey it in a more corporeal form as an homage be it intentional or unintentional you know no i i think i'm remembering now you know the japanese tradition of those kabuki masks and shows and whatnot Mm -hmm. they are conveying their deities and yokai and other spiritual entities they believe in totally i was listening to a uh, satanist talk recently about different types of uh, you know they're very into aesthetics and ritualistics and like if you looked at it from afar you'd be like oh that looks like some pretty wild shit but then like when you actually just kind of you know take away the the goat skulls and blood it's all just normal stuff it's all just the same rituals that's just their uh their mask they're putting on because that's what they feel like you know empowers them or or connects them to that bigger that bigger spirit or whatever you want to call it yeah it's essentially drawing the energy and maybe the imaginal from that character or entity that you are conveying yeah someone else like society created the power of those images and like imbued it imbued them by either saying that they're taboo or that they're not of proper society and they're just taking advantage of the power that was imbued by that like uh out uh what's called Uh, exercising or that uh, uh ostracizing of those ideas and images. Hmm. 
Okay, Maybe. man. <laughs> I'm I'm now worried. Like uh, this is a rural Delaware. We're talking about Satanism. <laughs> <laughs> We're going down a slippery slope here. It's We're going um, down a slippery slope. My, my my brain is slightly fried today, Vuk. I'm uh I my uh no no I, I'm having... just saying like the next Selbyville monster will be connected to Satanism in a way. <laughs> oh no, we don't want that. Let's <laughs> because not because we're that putting out there. that energy out there. Although I'm uh I I'm coming around to thinking that this Lucifer fellow might not be as bad as everybody makes him out to be. <laughs> I mean, light bearer. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I didn't expect to get into that. <laughs> um, but I want to say, like, you and me, are we now conjuring talpas of the Selbyville Swamp Monster by even talking about this and focusing so much of our intent and talking two hours about this creature and that place? And the listener is listening to this and thinking about Selbyville and the Swamp Monster. Are we collectively revitalizing the myth there and providing it more power? Yeah, I think we absolutely are. And I think that, uh, you know, there's no... I, I don't ever like to be definite about any of this stuff, but if there's one thing that I am pretty sure about, it's that these conversations and this uh, focusing of intent, like we talk about, is the best way to kind of keep these... Man, I, I keep using the words myths, but like I can't think of a better word right now because I, I feel like that just sums it up. And yeah, the, the more we put the intent and the stories out there like this, the more I think that there's just going to keep replicating and going. I was telling my kid just a minute ago, he's like, Dad, what are you talking about out there? And I was like, oh, the Selbyville Swamp Monster. And my kid said he's five. And he was like, oh, that's the swamp guy from the beach. And I was like, yep, that's the swamp guy. from." The-. So like <laughs> there's a whole nother generation now that uh, is going to know about about these things and oh yeah i th- i think that's very sweet that a five-year-old kid is now talking about this man who did this very random awesome thing and is being you oh, know, yeah. memorialized for that yep no absolutely and he is he knows about the hoax and everything else and uh yeah he actually he he my he just texted me and or well my wife Allie just texted me and said that tay just asked if i'm done talking about the swamp guy yet <laughs> 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 That's too uh, well, funny. Speaking oh. of swamps, I am feeling very swamped now after talking with you for two hours, man. No, me too. This was amazing, Vuk. I am so glad. Like, one, thank you for asking me to do this because I listen to so many paranormal podcasts and never get to hear about Delaware and the fun little weird shit that we got going on. And this was a like I couldn't think of anybody better to dive into it with than you. Oh, yeah. And there is a lot more to Delaware. <laughs> we just uh, yeah. talked about one county. We'll uh, we'll do the we'll move up to Kent County next. <laughs> we'll work our <laughs> way up the state. Oh, yeah. Then we're, we're going to talk about Black Panthers and alligators. Oh, I'm so down. <laughs> oh, man. So uh, for the end, like where can people find you and where can they see the beautiful art of the Selbyville Swamp Monster you're probably going to make for this episode? You know it. Uh, you can find me at createmagicstudios.com. That has links to all the socials and everything. Um, at Todd DE85 on Instagram. Uh, yeah, go createmagicstudios.com is the easiest. It's got the podcast link, Create Magic Podcast. You can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts. And I am going to be drawing not only the Selbyville Swamp Monster, but definitely this pug werewolf uh, dogman <laughs> creature that you should like that is 100% going 
going into the uh, sketchbook tonight or oh, tomorrow yeah. morning. Maybe, maybe you insert like a black triangle somewhere in the sky, but with two glowing red eyes. Oh yeah, oh yeah. No, that that might deserve its whole own drawing uh, at some point itself. That's beautiful. Oh, yeah. That I, is, I should so, yeah. dig up. I should dig up that case, man. That's really cool. Yeah, I maybe think Albert Rosales has something on it. Totally. That would be amazing. <laughs> well, Vuk, thank you so much, dude. I really appreciate you having me on to talk about all this fun stuff. And I can't wait to do it again, dude. No problem, man. I hope yeah. we're going to be making a lot more episodes. <laughs> Because we're both passionate about this and like you bring so much energy to this conversation that I just feel like I need to talk and, you know, feel positive about these things. Dude, the positive has been the best. My favorite episode you've done recently was the AP Strange one and how uh, positive of a note that y'all ended on just made me so happy. So I am glad that that is becoming more of a theme these days. Well, have you noticed like my opening music is always this, you know, edgy cool you know sci-fi music whatever (laughs) but then the ending music is this beautiful symphony because that's how i start my podcast i started it with edginess and digging myself into a hole you know the usual stuff with these dark Mm -hmm. podcasts but then by the end i always try to go out on a positive note well, you you nailed it with the AP one, and I've I've you know I probably picked up on that subliminally, but never thought about it. And now that you say it, I'm going to listen for it. <laughs> <laughs> so, ending on a positive note, guys, don't be assholes towards hoaxers. Sometimes they are very cool, awesome people who are revitalizing myths and legends and sparking creativity and causing us to sit down and talk for two hours about their shenanigans. <laughs> Yes, I agree. I can't support that message more. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time, guys. Bye-bye. Bye.